Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... How many people jump into friendships, dating relationships, marriages, without ever asking the question of virtue? Does this person have the skill, the ability to love me? Because love is so much more than just feelings. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. Normally, Kara doesn't join us for the interview segments of these episodes, but we are doing things a little bit differently this time because this week we are joined by Dr. Edward Sri. Dr. Sri is a Catholic theologian, author, and speaker who has written more than 10 books, including Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, which we just finished, has made numerous appearances on EWTN, and along with Curtis Martin, co-founded Focus. Dr. Sri, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So we just finished reading your book, Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, and talking about it in our past few episodes. And if you listening at home want to listen to those episodes, they are the even-numbered episodes between 60 and 70. But uh, Dr. Street, just to get us started, what prompted you to write Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love? You know, it goes all the way back to when I was a young professor at Benedictine College in Kansas. I was asked to teach a Theology of the Body course, and I was all excited to do that. And I remember spending my winter break just going back and rereading Love and Responsibility. I'd read it before, but really not this thoroughly. And I, I remember being down in this Benedictine Abbey crypt. And every day I might read like 10 or 12 pages an hour, <laughs> partly because if you've read it, it's, it's thick reading. But mm-hmm. most of all, because I was just so moved by what John Paul II was saying about what love is, how beautiful it is, the high standard of love. But I also felt it was like an examination of conscience for me to look at how much I was falling short in my own marriage. And, uh, and, and, and it really was inspiring me to want to live authentic Christian love better. And I also saw in what John Paul II was offering in, in Love and Responsibility, this, this earlier work behind you know, the scenes of TOB, I saw that it was going to be so applicable for the young people I was teaching in, as they were trying to navigate friendships with the opposite sex, dating relationships, the prospects of marriage, uh, love responsibility is so practical. As a friend of mine that does a lot of work with TOB, he says, you know, TOB is awesome. It's inspiring. It's beautiful. But love and responsibility, it changes the way you wake up on Monday morning and treat your spouse. <laughs> it's like immediately applicable. And when I taught that class that, that year, I'll never forget it. I ended up spending half of this class on love and responsibility because all the students were eating it up and they loved TOB, but they really loved love and responsibility. And I just saw over the years as I kept teaching it and then starting to teach it for focus and young adults, just all of the feedback of just how it was revolutionizing the way that they looked at relationships of the opposite sex. I eventually thought, okay, well, we'll want to put this into a book form so that it can be used uh, for people around the world. And and thankfully, I'm, I'm so thankful that the book has been able to bless many people's lives. It's not my wisdom. I know it's, it's JP too. Uh, and I'm so thrilled that people are accessing, you know, it's thick, it's, it's, it's deep, but I, I try to make it very accessible, very practical for young people's lives. That is interesting. I actually, I mean, I mentioned to you this to you as we were, you know, getting ready here that I think I've used this book three or four times as sort of like a study group for young adults and, yeah, I think that like the practicality aspect of it is what everybody hits on because it's so much easier to get it in sort of those bite-sized language as opposed to, you know, sort of philosophical treatise. It makes it much easier. Mm. Yeah, I'm sort of curious. I mean, obviously, we're big fans, loved the book. 
Uh, I'm sort of curious if you've had any pushback or sort of negative reactions. I mean, obviously, the book has been out for a long time, or, or, you know, things that sort of have stood out to you that maybe are there like shifting changes in sort of the culture that have brought up new issues? Yeah, you know, it's interesting is, I, ha- I mean, I have that a lot. I've had other people kind of, you know, ask questions about other things. But this book here, it's just it's resonated with not just Catholics, not just Christians, the people of all faith backgrounds, people that have no faith, that are very secular. I, I remember hearing from the, you know, there was this young adult group in New York that I think you you mentioned you were a part of, you know, and um, I, and they were using this, you know, down there in Soho, like out on the streets, like they would have like this big outdoor gathering with like 60, 80 young adults. And then they would take an excerpt from the book and like put it, photo, put a photocopy out there. And people would just walk by and look at the photocopy, stop in and listen and hear, and then they'd be drawn in. And I heard from, from the diocese, Archdiocese of New York, how many times they would get people having conversions. Like, like they would, they might, I mean, at least conversions on like things like chastity or relationships, and they might be an atheist, but they go, I've never thought about this. And this so resonates with my experience, mm-hmm. but it did lead to actual genuine, some people converting to the Catholic faith and all. And so I, I think that's the, again, the beauty of what John Paul II offered was really speaking to the human heart and that human heart, whether, you know, never what race you are, what nation you're from, what religious background you are, are I think the principles JP2 writes about and the responsibility are, are really going to speak to you. So I just thrilled that people continue to want to delve into love and responsibility to find this as the the guidance for their lives. If there was one, like, I mean, I'd say there's many things that people tell me about, like the, the whole chapter on friendship, the three different kinds of friendship just really speaks to people. And they can go and go, wow, I realize I had these other, you know, utilitarian friendships that, that just like, that's why it never lasted. And I long for virtuous friendship, like that speaks to people. Or I think particularly what the one thing I've heard a lot about is that I have a chapter all on the role of the emotions and how we can use people emotionally. You, you may never have a physical relationship with someone, but you can easily fall into letting your emotions get carried away and idealizing the person. And, and you're not really falling in love with the person at that point. You're just falling in love with this ideal that you created and you meet someone and they have like, you know, five and a half of your favorite qualities that you want in a future spouse. And, and all of a sudden you make them out to be Pierre Giorgio, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and you start walking away. I've had women tell me like they can have a 20 minute conversation with a guy, you know, they meet for the first time and start thinking about wedding dresses, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. you just let your mind get carried away. And, 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 and again, that that's human. We shouldn't beat ourselves up for that, but we want to be aware of that, right. that, that I want to be yeah, careful. Yeah. I'm not letting myself fall down that road of this kind of emotional um, use of another person that, that their, their ideal gives me great, you know, emotional satisfaction. No, I want to love the person as they are. So one, one reaction I, that you mentioned in the book, in the introduction, uh, the guy who said, this is dangerous. Don't let my wife see this. <laughs> I don't know if you can remember what that was in response to in particular, but I want to guess, was that the bit on uh, emotional tenderness and feeling what the spouse is feeling? Oh, no, it was the whole thing. It was the whole thing? Okay. Yeah, this is one of my colleagues, and he had been reading. The, the, I originally wrote a series of articles, yeah, that, and then the, that became the, uh, the basis for a book eventually. And, um, and he had been reading what I had been writing on it and understanding, you know, and I have lots of quotes right from JP too. And that's why he, he made that comment. So it really was the whole picture. And yes, it would include the part you just mentioned, but it was really just the whole standard of 
wow, I'm really called to, you know, create an environment of total trust for my spouse. I'm called to lay down my life. I'm called to honor, <laughs> you know, I'm called to have that profound sense of responsibility for my spouse. He just, I think the whole picture of love made him go, wow, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really falling short. <laughs> Well, I feel like it brings out that sort of like Ephesians 5 makes it more concrete because I feel like, you know, actually, it's fine. I got married earlier this year and my husband and I chose that for one of our readings. And it's funny because, I mean, I used to work in investment banking. I'm certainly not the kind of person that you would think would be like, yes, I'm, you know, you're the head of the households and I'm going to defer to you. But we both had, had talked about the fact that like it's actually a really interesting call to men to sort of understand what it means to love your spouse the way that Christ loves the church. And I feel like, you know, you're the LNR and I think this book in particular sort of like makes that more concrete as to like, what does it mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. Young couples will often get married and they're all inspired by Ephesians 5 where, you know, we're going to, we just love each other. We're going to lay down our lives for each other, serve each other, sacrifice for each other, <laughs> you know, and then your wife asks you, Hey, could you go take out the trash? I'm like, can you wait till the third de- to fourth down? You know, you're kind of like just <laughs> frustrated. You're, you're interrupting my watching of this football game, <laughs> you know, or, you know, the baby wakes up in the middle of the night, you got to take care of the baby and you're complaining about it interiorly, you know, you know, but, but marriage just, this is what it does. It stretches us, you know, it, it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's called a school of love for a reason. We're learning to love like Christ loves. And that's what love and responsibility is doing it is it shows like those initial aspects of love that bring a couple together are beautiful. They're wonderful, but that initial emotional attraction and that initial sensual physical attraction is not the essence of love. It, it draws a couple together, but but then God wants to take that love and, and bring it and make it deeper to make it more Christ-like. And so like love is not tested when you're out on date night and she looks so beautiful, having a great time, you know, you know, and, and your heart's going pitter patter. Okay. That's, that's great when those moments happen in marriage, but, but love is really tested when your spouse hurts you and when your spouse lets you down, when your spouse says something unkind, when your spouse isn't there for you, when your spouse doesn't appreciate you, when your spouse you know, does something that, that frustrates you. Because in those moments, that's when we're being invited by Jesus to love like he loves. Because on Good Friday, Jesus experienced hurtful words, lack of appreciation, lack of understanding. Those that were closest to him weren't there for him. There were physical injuries. I mean, he just like really just suffered tremendously, and yet he still loved and what we want to do is see those moments in marriage is not just, oh, those are frustrating moments. And, oh, I wish that my spouse wouldn't do that. We want to see that as, no, that's an opportunity for me to meet Jesus right now. As a married man, with those of us called to this vocation, we can meet Jesus in the chapel, of course, and in the liturgy and in the rosary and the Bible. But one of the primary ways Jesus wants to meet us and form us and shape us is right there in the relationship with our spouse and all that comes from family life and the drama of family life, uh, you know, and, and, and particularly in the shortcomings uh, in, in my spouse where I'm being invited to love more like Christ. Um, so, yes, it, it, love is not just this high, you know, Ephesians 5, you know, ideal up here in the sky. Yes. But to bring Ephesians 5 to the concrete realities and the daily trial, trials and difficulties and hurts of married life. That's when we are sanctified the most. Well, just to just to piggyback on what you're talking about with sort of marriage, and one of the things that I appreciated about the new chapters. So when when I had read the book before, it was before your sort of edited edition had come out, and I appreciated the chapters that were sort of talking about you know engagement and kind of 
there seems to be a bit of a gap sometimes in reading the book between the early stages of sentimental love and then the higher genuine real love is sort of more manifested in marriage. And I appreciated the the sort of context for kind of like, how do you go from A to B? Um, you have this part about during engagement, like that's the time to be having these conversations about the crucial topics about, you know, faith and finances and openness to children. So I'm, I'm curious in kind of your sort of marriage ministry, do you feel like that those types of conversations are things that should be reserved for the engagement period? Or is that more of a like, you guys should really be thinking about these things in general before you get married? And any advice on like people who are who are seriously considering marriage, whether they're engaged or not? Oh, yeah. So yeah, my wife and I would say, I, of course, th- these are the kinds of things you don't want to get engaged and not know like, oh, do you believe in God? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was my take. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we mention it because unfortunately, many couples don't talk about fundamental mm-hmm. matters about faith, about parenting, about openness to children. And, you know, and though that's crucial. And you you actually want to you want to think about that before you get to the the engagement ring, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So um, but, but we put it in there because, you know, we, we need that. But but back to like one thing you mentioned, my wife and I, we have this the CD that was featured in Lighthouse Catholic Media. It's on, it's on the, the the realities of marriage, and you know, it's like we were speaking to a group of young adults here in Denver uh, about, okay, this is what marriage is really like, you know. And then one of the questions that always come up whenever we do this talk, they always say, okay, what advice do you have for us to prepare for marriage now? You know, like whether we're you know if, if we're engaged now or we're dating and maybe thinking about marriage, what what would you do? And I, I think those conversations. Are healthy now. I don't think it's good to talk like on the third date. Like, what's your favorite, you know, approach to NFP? You know, I think that's a little weird. You know, how many kids you want to have at the third date probably isn't the best thing. But you know, when the relationship's getting serious, usually you're talking about marriage before you, you know, actually propose. You know, and in those stages, that's you definitely want to by that time. I think have those questions. I think another thing though that's really important to do uh, for a young couple. And my wife always advises this one. She says. You know, if you're serious and you want to be married someday right now, commit to something that you do together in service to others and be faithful to that commitment. You know, a lot of young people like to volunteer when it's convenient, when it fits into their schedule and, you know, when it's interesting for me, you know, but, but that's not what marriage is not about. Oh, oh, I love holding my baby right now because she's so cute. But when the baby is pooping or the baby is spitting up or waking up at two in the morning, that's not as interesting for me. And we're called to love all the time, you know. Uh, and so my wife always says, you know, you know, be, go volunteer, serve the poor, help at the, the youth ministry, help out at the parish, whatever it is, but be faithful. And when your favorite game is on and you're thinking, oh, shucks, I want to watch my favorite game, but I committed on Saturday morning to do this. Be faithful to your commitment. You can watch the game later, you know, or, or your friends want to go hiking. Well, that's nice, but you, you commit it. Be a man or woman of your word right now. Practice as, husband, as, as boyfriend and girlfriend, being committed to serve something outside of yourself week in and week out. I, I think that's one of the best things you can do because marriage is going to stretch you and you're going to have to be faithful week in and week out in ways you don't want to in ways that are not convenient and, and according to your schedule and your, you know, your interests. And, and so if you can join together and serve something outside of you, I think that's kind of something JP2 brings out is that real love isn't when you're kind of facing each other, staring in each other's eyes, you make me feel so good. 
that's not that's not real love. Real love is when you're shoulder to shoulder looking outward and serving something bigger than yourself. Uh, so train yourself now to do that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I feel like even not in dating, if there's one thing, you know, I'm a millennial, I'm in my 30s and I lived in New York for a long time and now living in you know the Washington, D.C. area, I feel like probably one of the biggest temptations of our generation is to not commit to anything, especially, you know, social engagements like, well, I hit the maybe on the Facebook invite and I'll see on the day of if it's convenient for me. Kara, I don't know what you're talking about. That's completely foreign. <laughs> I was very excited that you showed up for my party, Andrew. Thank you. <laughs> but I mean, I think I feel like that's good advice for just like four us in character, it, which seems to be a difficult thing for our generation in general. Think about it, if you're always pressing maybe on those invites, and if you're always so uncommittal, how are you possibly going to handle marriage where you just have to be there for that person and show up all the time, 24-7? And then, and that's before kids. Imagine when kids come. You're, you're, you know. So what we're doing is we're training our will to not be men and women of commitment. We're training our will to do what's interesting to me, like to be more selfish, you know? And, and so what we wanna do is go out of our way to intentionally lay down our lives in little things right now. Like to just give up two hours on us every Saturday morning is really, we're just talking, that's a tiny little generosity, you know, it's good, but it's just practicing faithfulness, commitment, um, dying to self. And that's gonna do so much to train you to love your spouse. Another aspect of the uh, expanded edition uh, that we appreciated was uh, in the chapter on singlehood, the embrace the weight mentality. It felt kind of contrary to what people might hear from earlier generations in their families, whether they're Catholic or not, just they, they understand maybe a part, maybe the more procreative side of family and less so the unitive side. Um, because those earlier generations, their advice tends to be hurry up, get married and have kids, you know, while you can. Um, have you come across any resistance to the idea of embracing the weight? It's not in the pushback, but I, I would say it's hard. You know, I, I have many, there's many pe good people that uh, my wife and I know that are longing to be married. You know, they're in their later 20s, their early 30s, later 30s, early 40s. They just long to be married. And, and I, it is a real cross. Um, and so I, I don't minimize that at all, but I'm going to share with you something that, um, that happened. In fact, we, we talk about, it's in the CD that I just mentioned the realities of marriage talk we gave, uh, at the Q and a period, somebody asks this, this very question. So what advice do you have? You know, I, it's hard to wait and I'm just, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, should I just lower my standards for what I'm looking for in someone? Like, what do I do? And I, you know, so what would you say to someone that really wants to be married, but they're not married yet and they're longing for it? And I'm I'm sitting here pondering in my head, okay, what are the three things I might offer? And my wife comes over, grabs the microphone from me, <laughs> holds the microphone, she goes, says, I have three words for you. Three words that are so important. And I'm wondering, what is my wife gonna say? What are these three words? <laughs> and she, she just says, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And, and she says, this is an important lesson that you have to learn, whether, you know, whether you're single or married. And we all have to learn it right now that whatever is happening in our lives right now, whatever challenges, difficulties, uncertainties, sufferings, Jesus is enough that we have to learn to really cling to him and depend on him for our life. You know, if I, and she, she says, if I'm in marriage and I'm thinking my spouse is going to fulfill me, 
You know, my spouse is there to fulfill my needs, make me happy, make me feel good. That's a recipe for disaster in our marriage. I have to learn that only Jesus can fulfill me. And if I don't learn that when I'm single, I'm going to go into my marriage and expect something of my husband that's not that that's not realistic and I'm going to be disappointed. And this is and this is what we see happening with many young people today. Many young people they're they're longing and longing, they're dreaming to be married, dreaming to be married, and then they get married and it's really hard and they're not fulfilled. And so they're like, oh, I need something else. Well, maybe we need to have a baby. So I have a baby, and then the baby comes. Oh, baby will make me happy, but the baby's actually even more draining and exhausting. Well, maybe I need two babies. So I have two babies, and they're still not satisfied. Now I need to go, I'll start a business or I'll get a, a podcast and a YouTube channel. I got to try to find something to make me happy and fulfill me. Yeah. And the problem is they don't get that a vocation isn't about someone fulfilling me. It's about me giving my life to serve something else. And if we don't learn to find the deepest longings on our heart satisfied in Jesus, we're always going to search somewhere else. No marriage is going to satisfy you. No child is going to satisfy you. We have to learn. So young people to learn, even in those single years, to learn to cling to Jesus, I need to learn that. My wife needs to learn that. That's something we all need to do, but, but what we have to do is find, the, and, it's, and it's hard, but we have to remember with the eyes of faith, Jesus really is enough. He's the only one that will satisfy the deepest infinite longings on my heart, and I need to be with him. And that that's such an important thing. If we can get that, more of that, before we go into marriage, our marriages are going to be so much better. So anyway, that, that was a little, little piece that my wife mentioned, in, uh, and, and I, so I share that with you all. <laughs> yeah, if Jesus is not enough in whatever sense the individual is feeling that he's not enough, there's no way that a spouse would be enough in that way. That's a great point. That's interesting. I had, um, I used to run a women's magazine and we had a, a writer who basically wrote this, that exact thing. And she was saying, it's so interesting how you can get so fixated on a sort of like end goal where it's like, oh, well, if I just get married, I'll be happy. And she's like, well, you like your heart always wants something else. It's never satisfied with just the one thing that you want. Um, she's like, you know, learning to be satisfied with, you know, whatever it is that that God is giving you. And whether that's like, I'm longing for marriage or, you know, I have lots of friends who have struggled with infertility. Like I'm longing for children and feel like it's always a, a lesson for us. I'm also someone who got married much later in life. So it's like, yeah, it could be really hard to be like, right now, what, what Christ is asking me to do is, you know, get up in the morning and go to work and like minister to my friends and be there for other people. And I feel like that can be a hard challenge. And, and there's no doubt, I, I'm not minimizing the cross in any way, because again, I have, I have dear friends that are in that, and I, I hear from them their, their sorrows, you know, so I'm not minimizing it, but it's, it, but we have to remember with the eyes of faith, but the, the truth is that Jesus wants to be enough, you know, whatever state in life we're in, and we turn this to, this is an opportunity, if you learn that Jesus is enough when you're single, you may have a better marriage than those married people that have been married the last 10 years. You might've gotten married later but you are more mature in love, you know, because your love is going to be proper, more properly ordered. You won't be expecting from your spouse what your spouse can't give. A lot of young people that get married sooner don't learn that, and their marriages are suffering. I mean, you all know this from working in this ministry. You can be a devout Catholic and pray holy hours and love Jesus, be doly orthodox, and then you get into marriage and you realize, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. I've had so many young people tell me that. I thought if we pray, we love Jesus, our marriage, everything's going to be easy. And it's really hard. So I think when you're single, 
and you can learn to rely on Christ more in your life, you're, you're actually going to have a better marriage maybe than those that got married sooner, but didn't learn that lesson. Yeah. Imagine it could be harder for somebody who meets their spouse at a young age. It's not just the amount of time they've been married compared to other people, their current age, but if you meet your spouse at a younger age, they're going to play a bigger part in your psychological development too. And so the temptation to like the subconscious temptation to sort of inflate their spiritual significance, I could see would be pretty exacerbated by that. That's a good point. You don't know, you don't know anything other than the person. So why aren't they fulfilling you? Yeah. I, I think that is, if you, especially if you're coming in with that immature understanding of love, yeah, I, I think you, you could see a lot of challenges, you know, even studies show this, you know, that, that um, the millennial generation seems to be more, you know, experiencing much greater stress when children come. I've, mm -hmm. I've read that. I'm not an expert on this, but I've, I've read that in a couple of different places. Children are always stressful. <laughs> you know, it's God's way of helping us grow in generosity. But this, this, the, the millennial generation, I would bet it's the same with Gen Z coming up the ranks now. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's more stressful than it was in previous, you know, and why is that? You know, and I'm sure many things, but uh, part of it has to do with what we talked about earlier. We like to, you know, non-committal, like to plan things around my life. It's everything is me, you know, that we grew up in that, in that era, but, you know, but also part of it could be this also, this aspect of not, you know, not placing, like trying to find my happiness in another person. I want this, this other human being to fulfill me, you know? And so I got to find my vocation to get that fulfillment. And if I, if I have that attitude, um, it's, it's going to be harder when I get into, to marriage and then children are stretching me and I'm drowning and taking care of a baby. And uh, it'll be a lot harder, you know, if I haven't learned earlier to find my fulfillment in Christ. If people read Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, and they're still not ready to dive into love and responsibility or theology of the body, um, do you have any other recommendations that you can make on uh, other resources to help uh, maybe bridge that gap or help deepen their experience of this book? Oh, sure. I mean, there's so many good resources out there from so many good people. You know, there's one that I particularly liked is was done by Mary Healy a number of years ago. Our men and women are from Eden, I think is the title of it. And it's just a very basic, simple introduction to theology of the body. But Mary Healy, what I like about her, she, she's a biblical scholar. She's a good friend, but she just brings a certain maturity to explaining men and women relationships and what John Paul II's thought is. Um, sometimes there could be so much like, you know, again, a lot of young people get all excited. Oh, we're talking about sex and romance and the mystery of self-giving. And, you know, she's just very kind of just brings it down, very real, straightforward. I think it's a great resource, you know, that is is very well balanced uh, in its presentation. So that that's often one that I, I recommend. Since you finished uh, Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, have you had any uh, subsequent experiences or seen anything in the culture uh, that might prompt developing these ideas further, maybe in your new book, The Art of Living, which just came out? Yeah. Well, I would say, I know I wrote this book originally, I think it was maybe 2007, 2008, and then we came out with a new edition in 2016 um, that included stories from people around the world who had been reading the book and started small groups and um, have been emailing me all the time. So I just got stories from people of what was it that, you know, helped them, you know, live love and responsibility better. And we, we tell their stories or they look back on mistakes they made in the past. So whether it's single people, college students, young adults, married people, there's all, like all different walks of life from all over the world. 
you know, we tell their story. So it has all the content of the original one and their stories in the, in this new edition. But I would say even, you know, you know, over the last 10 years and what we're seeing in the culture, you know, there really is less and less of an, of a sense of people growing in virtue. You know, people tend to live their lives more on this, you know, social media and your, what, you know, what people think of you, they, this younger generation's very concerned about appearance. You know, it's just so funny. You know, I could even see it in my kids. Like I take a photo and I post it somewhere. They're like, oh, dad, no, no, no. The picture just has to be posted like this. Now I appreciate good high quality video and photography. And, and so I get it, but there's a certain sense in which they, they put their stock so much in appearance. You know, what does my coach think of me? What do my parents think of me? What does my teacher think of me? What does my boss think of me? And what are other people thinking of me? And and what does Instagram think of me? I you know, I just posted this and 60 seconds went by and nobody commented or liked it. Oh, you know, I mean, that's like, like, it's just so like, as if God cares about that, you know, what the, you know, but we're worried about others, what people think, but I want to, I want to run after what God thinks and what the angels and the saints think. And they rejoice when I grow in virtue. And, and so I think, uh, the, so you mentioned that my, my latest book that just came out is called The Art of Living, The Cardinal Virtues and the Freedom to Love. And that would be like, I, that might be, a, maybe that'd be another book that I would recommend uh, for like a follow-up to Men, Women, The Mystery of Love, because while Men, Women, The Mystery of Love talks a lot about the, the pitfalls, the, the ways we can fall into, you know, lack of authentic love in our relationships, in the area of our emotions, the area of, of physical chastity. But then the second half of the book starts to paint a picture of this is what real love looks like. What is genuine love? And the name of the book is called Love and Responsibility. And that's really what love is. When I, If I really have a, a sense of total self-giving for my beloved and a sense of responsibility, I'm starting to live the love that JP2 and Christ is, is pointing us to. But that requires virtue. That requires so much more than just good feelings, inspiration, so I often give this example, you know, I, I was just with my father actually recently. Uh, my father was a surgeon and uh, as a child, he grew up like sharing with me about surgery. He took me to meet his patients. He showed me slides of his surgery. I looked at anatomy books. So uh, I, I I grew up with this kind of interest and, in, you know, respect for surgeons to this day. I, I just have, you know, a, a great, great excitement about the idea of, you know, people and that do surgeries. But let's say I heard you needed a surgery and I said, oh. I love surgery. I am passionate about surgery. I get these excited feelings about surgery. I'll do your surgery for you. <laughs> Would you get on the operating table with me as your surgeon? <laughs> no way. I mean, you do sound pretty excited. <laughs> I, I don't have the skills of a surgeon, right? And that's just common sense. No one would get on the operating table with someone that doesn't have the skills of the surgeon. And yet, how many people jump into friendships dating relationships, marriages, without ever asking the question of virtue. Does this person have the skill, the ability to love me? Because love is so much more than just feelings. You know, you have to have virtue to be free to love. Here's the deal. Anyone can say, I love you. Some people might sincerely mean it, but it's only those that possess virtue that are capable of loving you. You know, really, it, virtue gives you the freedom to love. You know, the, in other words, if I'm generous, I'm kind, I'm prudent, I'm patient, I will do generous, kind, and prudent and patient things to love my wife and serve her well and give the best of myself to her in my marriage. 
But no matter how many feelings I had for her or good intentions I have for her, if I fall short in generosity, I will do selfish things that hurt my wife. If I fall short in patience, I will do impatient things that hurt my wife. And the feeling of love doesn't even necessarily need to cease while you're being ungenerous or impatient, right? You can still feel the love and not have the virtue at the same time. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. But but the fact of the matter is that that love itself actually isn't about the feelings, right? You know, because those feelings come and go. So I might have a lot of strong feelings for my wife. They might be feelings of frustration. They might be feelings I have to bring to confession. And I need to moderate those feelings, actually. That's part of what virtue is, is helping me to, to moderate my feelings, to, to bring healing to my emotions and my errant, my errant emotions, my errant desires, so that I can be free to give the best of myself. You see, the person that to the extent I lack in virtue, to that extent, I'm not able to love. Virtue gives us the freedom to love. And that's what the second book is all about, The Art of Living, it, uh, The Cardinal Virtues and the Freedom of Love. It walks through the great tradition of the virtues that pre in previous, civil, you know, previous eras had been passed on from generation to generation. We've lived the last couple hundred years where that great tradition has been withheld from us. And, and I, I just want to go back to the great thinkers like Aquinas and Augustine and the great saints and unpack the virtues that we need so that we can love. And this is, again, one of the things that we want to go after when we're single. We want to go after it while we're married. We want to instill it in our children when we're raising kids is the, the art of the virtues. Virtue gives us the freedom to love. It's so funny you mentioned this. My my book club, a separate book club from what we've been doing on the podcast, uh, we're reading the Brothers Karamazov at the moment. And we had a big debate over, um, you know, for anyone who's read it, there's Dmitry Karamazov as like this very exuberant and very emotionally unstable kind of character. Uh, and we were like, does he truly love this character, Rushenka? Another girl there and I were very adamant that like, is he even able to actually love her? He is so unable to control his emotions. Like he could feel all kinds of things. And it's exactly what we talk about in LNR that, uh, you know, sentimentality is very easy to come by, but like actually knowing somebody and choosing love seems impossible for somebody like that because they don't really, they don't have the mastery over themselves to be able to have a free will offering of love for the other person. It's like a nice bridge between the sentimentality and the real love. Yeah, I think we want to be men and women who are reliable, that other people can count on in life, right? And so it doesn't mean that Dimitri doesn't have sincere feelings or sincere intentions even, you know? But with the many, you know, faults and weaknesses that are there, it, it, it inhibits his ability to give the best of himself, you know, to others, you know? And, and that's why you know, again, love is so much more than a feeling, but it actually, it's to will the good of the other. But if I, if I, to be able to will the good of the other person, I need virtue. You know, it's like, I can't just say like, I will, like, a, I'm not a PGA golfer. I'm not a good golfer at all. You know, a PGA golfer could just walk up to the tee, hit the ball down the fairway, great distance consistently almost every time. Right. Cause they, it's a part of who they are. They, they possess that, that skill, if you will. I can't do that no matter how much I may will it, I may try, I may intend. I, I just, every once in a while, maybe I'll hit it down the fairway. Most of the time it's going to go in the water or in the forest or something, right? Well, I'm not a reliable golfer. You wouldn't want me on your golf team. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm not reliable. And I want to ask that question just about, do I have the character 
Am I growing intentionally in my virtues so that I could be the kind of person a future spouse could depend on? My future children can rely on and count on in life. Because again, I, it, it, love is so much more than feelings, passions, and good intentions. It comes down to, do I have the virtues so I can be interiorly free to love and to serve the people in my life? I think sometimes when people hear willing the good of the other, at least in English, they don't draw a distinction between merely wanting the good of the other. And they sort of hear that and instinctually might think it's the same thing. But there's a key difference. Willing is not just wanting idly internally. Willing is wanting and also being able to and bringing it about through action. Um, so you, you only will and act. You can want plenty of things that you never act on. So willing the good of the other, to your point, is not just about uh, good feelings or good intention. It goes beyond that. And it necessarily involves action. Mm. And I'd even exactly. I build on, I was a golfer in college and I mean, to your, uh, to your point about people on the PGA, you know, I feel like the virtues are the practice and like the reason that Tiger Woods and any PGA pro gets up there and can just like hit the ball well is because every single day they've been building that muscle memory for, you know, hours a day from years on end. So that when it comes game time, they can do it. And I feel like that's the min, like the missing link is like the virtue or the like the actual practice of putting those things into into the the action, not just the want, as as Andrew was saying, to actually be able to like I can love because I've been practicing virtue and it's a thing that I can work on. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, love is not passive. It's not like, you know, that John Paul Sang makes that point. In fact, like when you have lots of strong feelings for someone or you have sexual attraction for someone, that's not love. That's, he calls that an immature love. You're just having a psychological reaction. <laughs> you know, you know, that's not real love. A mature love is when your will is forged, you know, to choose, you know, to really choose what is best for the other person to serve them, their good and the good of your relationship. And, but that requires a lot of intentionality and going after your weaknesses and to, to serve the other person in, in virtue. It's so frustrating to hear people characterize our view of the moral life as following rules when the whole point of doing good and avoiding evil is not just to follow the rules, but is just to get to the point where it's possible to love the other for their own sake. Yeah. And that's where we find happiness. You know, that's why, yeah. that's why I wrote this book on the virtues. It really came out of a, a class that I was teaching for college students back. This is, again, I mentioned earlier in the show that I had taught at Benedictine College. And today it's known as this amazing Catholic place, you know, uh, but back in the early days when I was there, it was the party school. And like, you know, so all the people <laughs> in my moral theology class didn't want to be there. You know, they were forced to take a religious studies requirement. And I knew that they were coming in, Andrew, with that very perspective, that this is a bunch of morality in the Catholic Church is about rules. And it's about the church just telling us what to do. And so right. what I did is I spent the whole class talking about friendship. So it's like, you, we're all made for friendship. That's where we find our happiness. Friendship, dating relationships, marriage. We're going to find our happiness there. Ultimately, I think it's friendship with God, as Aquinas would say. But guess what? You need virtue to live your relationships well. And we spent well, half of the semester all walking through the virtues that we need, the, the art of living, to live friendship well. And then when we got to the tough issues in the culture, like they themselves could make the connection. Oh, well, my parents didn't live virtue in this way, and it hurt me. My old boyfriend didn't live virtue well, and it hurt me. Like they started making connections all on their own. And then they began to see, oh, I guess when you, you know, commit adultery and run off with someone else that actually has negative consequences on other people like me. 
you know, and, and they're like, and they can make the connections on the church's teachings on sexuality uh, or on the tough, you know, matters about marriage and life and all this. So I think this is the, the way to go in the culture is instead of coming in and saying, well, the, the church teaches these rules. I mean, we need to do that, of course. But I, I think if we can lay the groundwork, the, the virtuous life, then people are going to be more ready to hear that, that, that particular tough moral issue. Show what it is that's animating all those rules in the first place. Yep. <laughs> go figure. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up. Any uh, any parting shots? Oh, sure. And I'll just say thank you all. And if anyone there, any of you listeners have any questions, you can always reach out to me. You can find me on my website, edwardsri.com, which is edwardsri.com. I have a lot of free just talks and articles on this topic. Um, I don't sell anything on my website, but I just make things available if it's helpful for people. So you can check it out. And we'll have a link to uh, your website in our episode notes, along with links to Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. Mary Healy's book, Men and Women Are From Eden, The Realities of Marriage, and The Art of Living. So be sure to check out our episode notes for all that. Dr. Sri, thank you once again for writing this book in the first place and also for joining us. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. And if you want to hear more from the Sri clan, you can check out episode 37 and 38 to hear from Dr. Sri's wife and frequent collaborator, Beth Sri. Please share this episode with your friends, leave us a review on iTunes, and subscribe for free wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs>